From KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Hey friends, I'm Solomon Giorgio, and my knowledge of country music begins and ends with achy, breaky heart. Anyway, I know a lot more about country now, because I spent a little time with reporter Peter Gilstrap. Peter told me about one of his favorite songwriters. Who is Glenn Shirley? He was a, a lifelong criminal. He was locked up for most of his adult life. Every major prison that California has, he bunked in, Soldad, Folsom, San Quentin. Why do you think people don't know about him? You mean yet? <laughs> I'm not going to give away what happened to him, but he left the music business in a very final way in the 1970s. What do you think Johnny Cash saw in Glenn Shirley? Well, I think Johnny saw himself in Glenn Shirley in many ways. From KCRW, this is Lost Notes. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. It's a January morning in 1968. Johnny Cash is on stage in front of a thousand inmates in mess hall number two at Folsom Prison. As always, Johnny's dressed in black. He's standing tall with his Martin acoustic under harsh fluorescent lights, veiled by the smoke from hundreds of cigarettes. He's pushed his band through a prison-ready set, cocaine blues, I Got Stripes, and Send a Picture of Mother. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when. I'm stuck in Folsom Prison, and time keeps dragging on. And down in the front row, there's a guy with a chiseled face and a dark pompadour piled high. He's sucking on a Paul Mall. This is Glenn Shirley. Now, you probably know that Johnny Cash and this concert are part of country music legend. Glenn Shirley is not. But maybe he should be. You know how they say you should write about what you know about? That's what Glenn Shirley did, and he knew about prison. He could write a prison song like nobody else. The recording you're about to hear was made in a prison cell. And would you please listen closely to the words? You can't cage the mind of a dreamer With all the steel bars ever made The story I'm going to tell you is about Johnny and Glenn. Both of these guys were troubled, and both were looking for salvation. And fate or luck or dark circumstance or whatever you want to call it, it brought them together on this day at Folsom. Whether that was a good thing or a bad thing is hard to say. Glenn Shirley was born in Oklahoma in 1936. The Great Depression was in full swing. His family were honest people, hardworking farm laborers. They moved to Central California a couple years later in search of field work. On the good ship, 
When Glenn was young, Shirley Temple was a big child star, and kids made fun of Glenn's last name, which rubbed him the wrong way. Now, it's hard to blame a life of crime on the seeds of playground taunting, but by the late 1950s, Shirley was repeatedly in trouble with the law. His crimes were desperate. They were poorly planned and usually fueled by booze. Once, he saw a guy flashing a wad of cash. Glenn robbed him, only to discover it was a roll of singles. Another time, Glenn held up an ice cream company with a toy gun. He got 28 bucks. By the time he was in his late 30s, armed robbery convictions had earned Shirley the grand tour of California penitentiaries. Here's a CBS television interview with Glenn from 1971. Well, the hardest thing for me to admit to myself was the fact that I was in prison because I wanted to be in prison. You're fed and... Uh... Your house and your clothes, and you don't have to worry about where, you know, where your next meal is coming from. This is Glenn Shirley. Spade Cooley and I wrote a prison song. We just finished it today. We thought you might like to hear it. It's entitled Big Steel Prison Gate. Shocked, dazed, out of touch. Mind not working very much when I first saw that. Behind bars, Shirley killed a lot of time writing songs like this one, recording them on reel-to-reel tapes. You got to do something in, in prison or go insane. You know, like you can do it gambling, you can do it hustling, you can do it shooting narcotics or, or taking pills. But you got to have something going to let you face that next day. My cup's full of sorrow, but I know I can't complain. When his family visited, Shirley would hand over the tapes of his songs, and his sister Mickey would hand over more blank reels. This went on and on and on. Dad was just in prison. We'd go visit him and, you know, and get to see him and hug him and kiss him and be happy to see him. And I get to see my Aunt Mickey and listen to music, and everything was good. This is Rhonda Shirley, Glenn's daughter. She's a retired Tennessee state trooper. She and her stepbrother, Rusty, have been the keepers of Glenn's music. And over the years, she's had her father's tapes transferred to CDs, eight of them. Not a lot of people get the opportunity to hear this. And I just wanted to let you be a part of that. So, let's see, which one? All those tapes were probably destined for a cardboard box in the basement somewhere. But one song got into the hands of probably the only man who might have really cared. It's rolling around the bend And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on Despite the image he pushed and this hit song he wrote in 57, Johnny Cash was never stuck in Folsom or any other prison for that matter. But by the mid-60s, he was locked into a serious drug habit. He was far from creating classics like Ring of Fire, At this point, he was making albums like Everybody Loves a Nut, with singles like this. I'm getting swallowed by boa constrictor And I don't like snakes one bit So, yeah, Johnny was in trouble. And he needed a hit. And he needed a moment. That's Marty Stewart. He's a Grammy Award-winning musician and a country music historian. This guy is in love with all things Nashville. And Nashville, if you'll remember, had pretty much written him off. The Columbia Records world had pretty well written him off. 
But there was a wild card producer named Bob Johnston who had been working with Bob Dylan and, and the Birds and some of those guys. And John liked Bob because he, he was a wild card. For years, Cash had been pushing the idea of a live prison album. His label was not interested. John had played those prisons before, and he knew what the response was when he, he could get to them. And with Johnston's backing, Columbia finally gave the green light, and the Folsom recording date was set for January 13th, 1968. So, it's the night before the show. Cash and his band are rehearsing at the El Rancho Inn in Sacramento. Johnny is paid a visit by a guy named Reverend Floyd Gresset. Everything that happens from now on will hinge on this meeting. So... Reverend Gresset and John and myself are sitting around this motel room. That's Gene Beely. In 68, he's a young reporter covering Cash's Folsom experience for the Ventura Star Free Press. Turns out Johnny's friend in Jesus has something for him. And he says, well, what is it? And, he says, and so Reverend Gresset said, well, it's uh, a song by an inmate at Folsom Prison. Johnny Cash was intrigued. He said, well, anyone got a tape recorder? So I raised my hand, and he said, go get it. (laughs) We put that little demo tape on there. This is exactly what they heard. All right, this is a take on Greystone Chapel. Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul. There's a gray stone chapel here at Folsom, a house of worship in this den of sin. You wouldn't think God had a place here at Folsom, but he saved the soul of many lost men. It sounded really good, and I was kidding John. I said, well, John, if they let that guy out of prison, they'll put you out of business. He said, I want to record it. I want to record it. And uh, so he says, bring the tape recorder to my room. And I stood over him while he copied the lyrics down. The next morning, Johnny Cash is on stage. He's in mid-performance. Things are going great. Glenn Shirley is sitting there in the front row. His fellow inmates are all around him. They're clapping, they're whistling, they're loving it. Glenn has no idea that Cash is about to close the show with the song he wrote. Thank you very much. This next song was written by... A man right here in Folsom Prison. This song was written by our friend Glenn Shirley. And uh, hope we do your song justice, Glenn. We're gonna do our best. And Glenn jumped out of his seat, looked like his eyes were gonna bulge out of his head, and I thought. I just saw the happiest man alive. Inside the walls of prison, my body may be, but my Lord has set my soul free. There's a gray stone chapel here at Folsom, a house of worship in this to me that was kind of the heart of that record that was a great gesture but it was also a great song and a deserving song you know 
Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison became a crossover hit among country, pop, and rock fans. And it solidified his image as the real deal, the voice of the common man, the champion of the downtrodden and the disenfranchised. In other words, Johnny's plan worked. The Folsom Prison thing probably did save his career. This is pedal steel guitar legend Lloyd Green. He's been a fixture on the Nashville studio scene since the late 50s, and he has played with everybody. And then he became this uh, bigger-than-life creation, you know, with his dark clothes and the, the dark savior thing, uh, whatever uh, persona he had decided to ad- adopt, which was kind of always a little strange to me and a lot of other people but, <laughs> in the business. But, but you know, that's, that worked for him. When Cash and his entourage drove out of Folsom that day, Glenn Shirley went back to his cell. But his savior did not forget him. A real bond started to grow. Both saw elements of themselves in the other guy. It wasn't exactly warm and fuzzy yet, but it was getting there. In 69, Cash helped to get Shirley moved to the state prison at Vacaville, a minimum security facility. Glenn kept writing and recording, and Cash continued to push his music in Nashville. At this point, the man in black was getting a handle on his bad habits. Prison reform had been a cause for him since he wrote Folsom Prison Blues. Johnny believed a man could be redeemed. All he needed was a chance. Cash was in the process of saving himself, and now, with the help of God and Nashville, he was going to save Glenn Shirley. It was that messianic complex thing uh, kicking into high gear. I'm going to save this guy. I'm going to take it on myself to drag him along and the process save myself. Eyes that shine with love for me Caring not for fame's prestige In 1970, country superstar Eddie Arnold recorded Glenn's song, Portrait of My Woman. It wound up being a minor hit. The song helped Shirley land a contract, from prison no less, with the mega record label. The next year, Shirley recorded his own album live in prison, just like Johnny had, with a group of first-call Nashville session players to back him up. This next song I'm going to do for you here might sound a little cold-blooded, I guess. But if you've been here, you'll know what I'm talking about. Because you've seen it just like I have. If you just got here, well, God help you, man, because you've still got this side of ugly to see. And when I say ugly, that's just what I mean. Ugly. If this prison yard could talk, What a story could be told Of the things it's seen that would make A strong man's blood run cold Now let's think about this for a moment. Here's a repeat offender, a lifer, a guy with no future, someone who once robbed an ice cream company with a toy gun. Now, he was standing on stage in his prison-issue denims with the same musicians who played behind the most popular singers on the radio. Shirley was afraid nobody would show up for this thing. Attendance was not mandatory. But he wound up performing for a full house of almost 800 inmates. It would be a story to chill the soul If this prison yard could talk If this prison yard could talk Lloyd Green, who we heard from a minute ago, he played pedal steel on stage that day at Vacaville. 
he was just overwhelmed by all this. And he was, I remember we, we got through with the shows and he was literally soaking wet uh, from top to bottom. He, I guess from the uh, anxiety, the nervousness, because he, he was so concerned about doing a good job for those guys, for his friends in prison and for us. I mean, but but he did and they were, they were just elated, the prisoners. I mean, he was really treated as a hero that day. And he later told me that that was, uh, that was the greatest day of his life. Till her hair turned white as chalk It'd be a tale of men living in hell If this prison yard could talk This is your life, an American tradition with Ralph Edwards. Thank you and welcome to our show tonight. A few weeks later, Johnny Cash appears on the hugely popular TV show, This Is Your Life. As the title suggests, it's a journey through the guest's personal highlights. In Cash's case, that consists of a hell of a lot of low moments. Johnny just sits there dead-eyed and guilty as host Ralph Edwards delves into the darkness. As your popularity grows, Johnny, your responsibilities grow with it. As the pressure begins to build, it's an easy step to pills. Pills to give you energy and keep you going during the day. And then the nights are agony. The answer is simple, more pills to make you sleep. By a strange paradox, you reach the heights of artistic success during the period in which you are failing most as a person. In 1963, it was, you appear at the Hollywood Bowl, and it's obvious that you're a very sick man. You're having difficulty with your marriage, then you start to slide downhill fast. By 1967, you reach bottom. But then they roll tape on a surprise message. A surprise message from Vacaville. Now, you've worked diligently for his release. Needs to be paroled soon, Johnny. So here on videotape from prison is the man who wrote Greystone Chapel, Glenn Shirley. Johnny's jaw drops. Finally, his face comes alive. He looks like a kid who's been told Santa really does exist after all. And there's Glenn. He's standing in front of Vacaville's razor wire fence, making his television debut to millions. Hello, John. How you doing, man? I'm sorry that uh, I can't be there today to be a part of your life, but I can't even begin to tell you how thankful I am that you've been a part of mine, man. I know that you've been a, a great inspiration to a lot of people, but none more than me, because I can honestly and truthfully say that you were the major turning point in my life. As Glenn talks, the camera cuts to Johnny. He's blinking back tears, staring at the monitor with wonder and gratitude. And maybe someday soon now, I can justify that faith and encouragement that you've given me by making a success and a productive life out of mine and maybe pass on a little bit of the kindness you've shown me. God bless you, man, and I hope the kindness you show people is repaid to you, comes back tenfold. I love you. And before long, that kindness becomes a reality. Cash commits himself to getting Shirley out of prison. He calls in favors, and he does not hedge his bets. He has California Governor Ronald Reagan covering the legal side and Christian power icon Reverend Billy Graham on the prayer front. And it works. In March of 71, Glenn Shirley is paroled. His album comes out a few weeks later and starts climbing the Billboard charts. Sing you 
All that time spent locked up meant Glenn hadn't seen much of his kids. Rhonda, who we've met, and her older brother Bruce. They were children when Glenn started doing serious time. As Daddy moved from prison to prison, the family followed. His wife Leela waitressed and worked odd jobs, raising the kids. Now here's Rhonda again, Glenn's daughter. If you look at the articles in the newspapers and stuff, you know, it's Johnny Cash helps men get out of prison, you know, and Billy Graham was part of that. And yes, he did. Absolutely. Uh, John helped him get out of prison. He gave him a job. He gave him a home. He did all that for him. But Dad did his time and got to a point to where he could be released. Under the parole agreement, Johnny had to guarantee Shirley employment and a place to live. This is one hell of an agreement. Glenn hopped a jet down to his new home in Nashville. Johnny gave him a spot in his touring show and signed him to a publishing deal with his own company, The House of Cash. I made my bid for freedom one cold and rainy night. I broke federal prison over walls I took my flight. Since then I've been running, Lord, and I can't see no end. I'm freedom kiss, but I hit the list on the FBI's top ten. In 72, Glenn married for the second time, a woman named Nikki Robbins, a mother of two and an employee of Shirley's record label. Johnny was Glenn's best man, and he hosted the wedding at his palatial spread outside Nashville. Cash also flew Glenn's kids in from Bakersfield, Rhonda, who we've met, and her older brother, Bruce. Bruce is 14, a few years older than Rhonda. It was the first time they'd ever been on an airplane and the first time they'd ever laid eyes on Johnny Cash. But it was Johnny who'd thought to include Shirley's children in the wedding, not their father. I can remember John come walking down the stairway, and this is a huge, huge staircase. And he come walking down and came up and gave both of us a hug. And he said, well, June's not quite ready yet, and your dad's not here, so let me show you around. At first, it was sheer surprise because they had told him and Nikki nothing about it. They had no idea that we were going to be there. And he was quite shocked and and taken back. But, you know, it, it was good times. Next, Glenn hit the road with Johnny on a tour that brought him to the Los Angeles Forum in front of an audience of 17,000 people. Two of them were Bruce and Rhonda. Except for in the living room. I didn't see him singing anywhere until I went to the forum. And I mean, I didn't see him down at Billy Bob's, all those people. First time I'd seen John and June play, you know, that whole atmosphere. That's the first time I'd been involved in it. It was, it was wow. That same year, Rhonda moved to Nashville to stay with her dad. He'd been incarcerated since she was a kid. So, and I lived with him and Nikki and the boys, and he'd be downstairs singing and writing and stuff, but not a whole lot of contact in the music industry. You know, different people would come by and stuff, but, but like I said, that was just a normal life, really. But normal life was not Glenn's forte. He found it hard to capitalize on his success, hard to toe the strict Nashville line. He knew how to be in prison. He knew how to be someone in prison. He didn't know how to be Glenn Shirley out here. He didn't know how to be the person people wanted him to be out here. He was very excessive when he got out of prison and was living here, whether it was soda pop or ice cream or Captain Crunch peanut butter, whatever it was, he did it in excess because he had been so used to being restricted. Shirley wasn't just jonesing for Captain Crunch. 
Though his drug use in the past reportedly had included heroin, now his habit centered on speed, the same taste favored by his brother Johnny. Bruce paid a visit to his dad around this same time. I went back there, and unfortunately, Dad had got back into the, the drugs at the time, and I didn't know it. I'm a dumb kid from Bakersfield, don't know anything about drugs. But I knew that he'd stay up for 24, 36, 40 hours at a time, and then he'd go sleep for 15 to 20 hours. That's the way they do it back here, I guess. I don't know. And I think when Dad was being Dad, meaning when he was not on drugs... He was someone you wanted to be around. He was somebody that you wanted to talk to. But when he got on drugs, not so much. All the demons came out when he'd get on drugs. But he was still my dad. Session player Lloyd Green was in Shirley's Nashville orbit. This is where the story gets a little dark now. In Glenn's eyes, Green seemed to have it all. A strong family, a good career, and close friends. It was the life Glenn idealized but couldn't seem to get. He wanted to come out to my house, and a number of times he came out to have lunch with us or just sit and have coffee. And uh, he carried a pistol, a loaded pistol. Now, this is a violation of parole, but I said, my wife and I don't have any weapons. We don't carry guns. And I said, we welcome you with open arms, but the gun stays in the car. I said, if you bring the gun in the house, you got to leave. And he, he always left the gun in the car. He just wanted to talk about music and how he could fit in and, and what was he doing wrong. He said, Lord, all my friends are left back in Vacaville. They're all in those various prisons up and down the West Coast. I remember that term he used so forcefully and so uh, uh, almost nostalgically. The dichotomy between where he was at in that little small cell and, and celebrityhood is, is not just a couple of dimensions. That's universally separated. For even a, a stable individual, that's tough, tough to deal with that. And uh, it must have been enormously complex and, and confusing for Glenn. Here's musician and country music historian Marty Stewart. To be turned out of the California penal system and to be put into the world of hillbilly show business, good old boy show business, there ain't a hell of a lot of difference in a lot of ways. It's one, you just swap in jailhouses. You know, I think I, I think he found a double-edged sword waiting on him outside those walls. And I think in his mind, he failed. At no point in time did I feel like he was a failure at music, but I think he did. Things were bound to come to a head. Enter Marshall Grant, Johnny's longtime bass player. He'd met Glenn at Folsom and played a lot of shows with him. Now, Grant was also Cash's road manager, the guy responsible for keeping the act together and dealing with folks that didn't always do what they were supposed to do. People like Glenn Shirley. One day, Glenn and Marshall had a run-in that forced even Cash to finally admit the truth. Now, here's Marshall speaking in the documentary Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. Glenn turns to Johnny's bass player and says this. He said, now, don't misunderstand you. I, l I love you. I love you. But what I would really like to do to you... I like to get a butcher knife. I like to I like to start cutting you all to hell. I like to drain every drop of blood in your body out on that floor. And for Johnny Cash, that was the last straw. Johnny had prayed, he'd called in favors, he'd banked his own reputation on the salvation of Glenn Shirley. But really, this redemption thing just was not going to work. Cash was forced to cut Glenn loose. 
According to Lloyd Green, shortly after Cash fired him, Shirley showed up at Green's house and was, quote, really disturbed. He said, Johnny's not my friend anymore. And I think that was the breaking point for Glenn, and he couldn't handle that Johnny Cash had turned his back on him. I think that was uh, probably the utmost sad, disappointing moment of his life, probably, because that was the man he admired so much who had saved him from this prison life. But he was the architect of his own troubled life, of course. And at that time, John was clean and sober, and he saw what it did to him. I'm sure he saw what it was going to do to Dad and the road, the path he was on. You know, and he couldn't stop him. So the friendship dissolved. I've heard a lot of people say, well, do you think John should have taken more responsibility? It wasn't his job to take responsibility. He was his friend. He gave him advice, but dad was a grown man and chose to take it or not. So it was never John's job to guide my father through life. What would have happened if Johnny Cash had never entered Glenn Shirley's life? Did Johnny validate his talent and give him a few moments of transcendent glory? Or did he spark a downfall that might have been otherwise avoided? Well, I think you'd have to jump on both sides of the fence with that because where he was at, in my mind, he was pretty much going to be a lifer. I just don't think at the age that it happened, he could adjust his mind and wrap his mind around it. I've often wondered if they had... It all to do over again if John would have just sung the song and left him alone and left him in the jail. For most of the mid-70s, Shirley was at loose ends. He hit the road. He did a lot of driving and a lot of drifting. Tennessee, Utah, California, and parts in between. Drugs and alcohol were involved, and always the Pall Malls. He wound up feeding cattle in a stockyard in central California, living in the cab of his truck close to his brother Lib's place. He couldn't face returning to crime in prison, and he couldn't manage to fit into civilian life. On the morning of May 11, 1978, out on his brother's front porch with an empty house behind him, Shirley put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. He was 42 years old. He called me just a couple days beforehand, and we talked. And in my mind, I knew you had that sense of, this is an odd conversation, And so when my roommate told me that he had killed himself, I had already knew it. I said, it's dad. And she said, yeah. And she said, he's dead. I said, okay. When I talked to Nikki, his second wife, she had been on the phone with him just prior to him pulling the trigger. And she had been trying to talk him out of it. And I guess he'd hung up or was still on the phone or something because when they, when my uncle found him, he was laying on the front porch and the phone in one hand and the gun in the other. And who paid for the funeral? It was Johnny Cash. Now the door has opened and the warden's spoken. Please strap him in the chair. And as I walk close, emotion shows in the face of a young guard there. His hand is on the telephone, but there'll be no reprieve or stay. Now the lever snaps on the Sinai traps to end this, my last day. You ask all these questions, and that song kind of answers it. How did this happen? Why did it happen? What kind of man was he? 
And I think this song really sums it up. I think he wrote it about him. <laughs> What's the difference? Gas chamber or a self-inflicted gunshot wound? Over two decades later, Glenn Shirley came up in an interview. Cash still couldn't bring himself to admit how his friend had died. He was paroled after about three years. And he lived a very good, productive life for many, many years until he had a tragic ending from, um, well, actually, cancer. Cash died September 12, 2003, in Nashville. Now here's Glenn from the one album he recorded, Live in Vacaville Prison. I'd like to take a minute or two here and say a thank you or two if you don't mind. <laughs> During the show, I was thinking about all the faces out there that I can see that I've been seeing for years in here now. Because we come up through the ranks together. From Soledad to Quentin, and then on the CDC's last stronghold, Folsom. Now we come in looking back in anger, mad at the world trying to convince each other how tough we was and how we didn't give a damn. And some of us worked awful hard at it, too. But I know a lot of you were just like I was, sticking that front up day after day and laughing and joking, talking about this ain't nothing for a stepper. And then climb up in that bunk at night and cry. And hurt right here. Hurt right here, yeah. Well, I got ten and a half years of this lockdown business, and I'm not proud of any of it, because every damn day hurt. Now, a lot of you got a lot more than that, but some of you got a lot less, because you're just starting. Well, for God's sake, for God's sake, man, don't let it take you no ten and a half years in here to get yourself together. A story told can never be untold There's no way to prime an empty well A shadow fades at something we can't hold And once it's wrong you can't Glenn Shirley's buried on the outskirts of Bakersfield at Shafter Memorial Park Cemetery. It's a graveyard straight out of a country song, bordered by dense green pistachio orchards and the train tracks of the Burlington Northern. In summer, the sun beats down hard and makes things ripple in the distance. It's a place where peace and desolation coexist, and after a turbulent, unsettled life, it seems like the right place for Glenn Shirley. He lies next to his brother Lib beneath a flat gravestone. It reads, He searched for truth and found it in the Father. There's a rusted cup embedded in the headstone to hold flowers, but it looks like it's been empty for a long time. Today's episode was produced by Peter Gilstrap. Lost Notes is produced by Mike Dodge-Weisskopf. The executive producer is Nick White. Thanks to Marion Hodges for production assistance. 
David Weinberg, and Andrew Leland contributed editing to this episode. Our special thanks to Michael Streiskuth and Peter Cooper. Also to Rhonda Shirley for sharing the recordings of her dad's music. Incidental music for this episode was performed by George Madrid. Lost Notes is made with support from KCRW's Independent Producer Project. Our theme music is by Science Park. I'm Solomon Giorgio, and you're the coolest person I know. <laughs>